get your Bibles, if you would, please, and let's turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We're returning there this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 11 is where I would like to direct your attention in God's Word. While you're turning there, I will just mention I am so appreciative of all those who came to serve yesterday at our uh, work day. The windows are cleaner. Uh, the um, landscaping is mulchier, and uh, the uh, flowers are planted more. And uh, we um, really appreciate all the effort that you uh, extended. There was a lot of people here. We got a little bit of uh, rain in the midst of it and wind, and we kept at it. And uh, I really appreciate all of your labors. Uh, let's read, shall we, First Samuel chapter 11. What a wonderful privilege to read God's Word. So we'll uh, read these uh, 15 verses together this morning. Um, you follow along as I read from First Samuel 11. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty only with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, What is wrong with everyone? Why are you weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. When Samuel mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, Say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, By the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. But Saul said, No one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. Uh, Several months ago, I started uh, quoting a different passage of Scripture at the end of the service for our benediction. I'm sure you have noticed Jude 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Uh, Some of you are excited. You want to leave now. Uh, but the, um, those verses um, help us. It's a passage that is good to set before us.
because it's about God's keeping power. The Bible teaches us that those God calls to Himself, those who trust in Christ as Savior, are kept by God's power and God's authority. These verses help answer a question that we don't actually talk about very much. We don't speak out loud very often. But here the question is, why are you still a Christian? Why did you wake up this morning as a Christian? Assuming you are one, why are you still a Christian today? Especially after the day you had yesterday. How is it that you're still forgiven How is it that you're still a member of God's family? How is it that you are still a Christian uh, today? I ask those questions because I know that some of you feel them very deeply. In fact, those questions come to your mind a lot. This is your greatest concern. This is one of your greatest fears. It dominates your mind when we take the Lord's Supper. I say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, don't take those elements. And you think to yourself, am I really a Christian? I think so. I hope so. But it feels a lot like there's just not enough evidence in my life of that. You sit in church or you sit in your growth group or Sunday school and you look around and you think to yourself, if the people around me really knew about me, if they really knew me, if you really knew me, you wouldn't call me a Christian. Uh, This summer, it'll be 10 years since Barry Bonds broke Hank Aaron's record for home runs. Um, he hit uh, run number 756 on August 7, 2007. His life has not gone very well since that time. Uh, but even after uh, he hit that home run, within days or weeks or months, there were people who said that there should be an asterisk in the record book next to this record, an asterisk next to his name. Uh, you know what the asterisk is for, to indicate that it's a tainted record because of the charge and it's been uh, verified. Um, kind of, is that Barry Bonds was on steroids, that his home runs come because of, in part, because of his use of performance-enhancing drugs. So there should be an asterisk in the record book next to his name there. Uh, The ball that he hit over the fence for uh, hit number 756 um, was uh, caught, and it was eventually auctioned off, and a man by the name of Mark Echo bought the ball, and he went online and took a survey. What do you think I should do with the ball? And the overwhelming majority of people said, you should write a big asterisk on the ball and donate it to the Hall of Fame. And that's where it sits with the big asterisk on it. It's what he did. Uh, some of you relate to this story because that's how you think about your presence in the body of Christ. Or, to use a, a biblical image here, your name being written down in the book of life. God has this great book with the names of those who are His written down. And some of you are convinced that there's an asterisk next to your name in that book. This person doesn't really belong. A tainted, tainted presence. Jude 24 and 25 may talk about God's keeping power, but you're pretty sure that you don't qualify. Now, this may sound strange, but um, I wish that some of you had more doubts than you actually do. Some of you are plagued by doubts, and I wish I could relieve some of that anxious panic that grips you at times. Some of you, I wish some of you doubted more. That sounds very strange, isn't it? Actually, it's a little bit biblical. I got the idea from Jesus. 
Uh, in John chapter 8, now John was written, of course, to help people know that Jesus is the Christ and you can have eternal life in his name. But there was a conversation that John had one day with some Pharisees, some Jews, in fact, that were inclined toward him, but they still had a lot of questions. And listen to what Jesus said to them in John chapter 8, verse 31. He said, to the Jews who believed him, this text says, Jesus said, if you hold my teaching, you are really my disciples. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Here it is, very clearly stated, it is possible to think you are a follower of Jesus and not really be one. Possible to think that. In fact, just a few chapters before this, in John chapter 6, the Bible says Jesus said some really hard things. Some hard things. And the text says many of his disciples stopped following him at that point in time. Not the 12, not the 12 disciples, but many of the followers just This is too hard. Who can handle this teaching? And they walked away. Well, Jesus draws a line in John 8. He said, if you hold to my teaching, then you are a true disciple. You have reasons in your life to doubt. I wish some of you doubted more. Elizabeth Elliot tells about a scene she saw once. She doesn't anymore, but she used to tell about a scene that she saw once in her house involving her brother Tommy. Tommy had permission from his mother to play with the paper bags that she used to store in the kitchen in a cupboard. I'm not sure why you'd want to play with paper bags, but this is what Tommy loved to do. One day Tommy was uh, playing with the paper bags in the kitchen and he heard his father sit down at the piano in the other room and he wanted to go and sing and play with his dad. So he left the bags there because he didn't want to miss out. He went to the other room and they started uh, playing and singing together and... and, uh, uh, Tommy's mother came into the kitchen and found those paper bags all over the floor. She went out to where the piano was, and there Tommy sat with his father. And and, uh, Elizabeth Elliot, both of her parents were believers, so they were singing, Jesus loves me. Tommy's mother said, Tommy, you left the paper bags out. Tommy said, yes, but I, I want to sing, Jesus loves me. And his dad leaned over to him and said, son, it does no good to sing God's praises while being disobedient. I think that's what people mean sometimes when they say uh, things like, I'm spiritual but not religious. I'm spiritual. I like how it feels when we sing, or I like how it feels when we pray and think about God's love, and I love how it feels when we talk about uh, Jesus. But, you know, I just really don't have very much time for all the demands that he makes. I'm spiritual but not really religious. You have reasons in your life to doubt. I would not wish you to be plagued by them, but I would wish you to be honest with them and thoughtful about them. Jude focuses our attention in Jude 24 on God's keeping power, which is actually also a theme of 1 Samuel 11. And this morning what I want to do is I want to start or maybe continue building in your mind and heart the confidence and joy that comes from this affirmation. God is the one who is able to keep you, keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in his presence. It's a keeping power that lasts your whole life to the point where you will stand in his presence. And it's a keeping power that is not by the skin of your teeth, not with an asterisk, but so that you might stand there without fault and with great joy. Some of you have it in your mind. Someday we'll stand before the throne of God and you're going to hide behind somebody. Maybe because in case God sees you, he might realize you snuck in. Right? That's not, not Jude 24 at all. Without fault and with great 
joy. I want you to feel those verses a little bit more, and I want you to appreciate it by turning your attention to 1 Samuel chapter 11, that chapter that I just read. It's been a couple weeks since we've been here, so let's try to orient ourselves again. Remember, the theme of Samuel is that God rescues his people, or God shepherds his people through his anointed king. And so far we've been on this path to God getting ready to give the people the king that he wants them to have. David is the king who is after the man after God's own heart. Right now, though, we're in a bit of a detour. We're talking about Saul, King Saul. These 12 tribes that were led out of the nation of Egypt by Moses uh, have been in the land for 400 years. And as we open chapter 11 here in this scene, actually uh, most of so far the book, the Israelites have been in the promised land and threatened Uh, They're threatened on the west by the Philistines, who are always attacking them. And they're threatened on the east by the Ammonites. In the past, when foreigners have been attacking and threatening the nation, God has raised up a deliverer. We call them judges. Uh, They lead temporarily the army and they deliver the people. And it's wonderful. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people come to the point where they don't want these temporary leaders anymore. In fact, they want a king. They want a king just like all the other nations. They're hoping that a king will give them more security and they won't have to worry about the Philistines and the Ammonites uh, what they don't realize, and Samuel warns us about them, warns this about them, warns them about this. <laughs> All the words are there, just not in the right order. He warns them about this, that their request for a king, just like all the other nations, is actually a rejection of God and his kingship. That's serious. We're, we're, in fact, we're going to talk about it again when we get to 1 Samuel 12, Lord willing, next week. Nevertheless, God relents and he gives them Saul. He's the king they think they want. He looks like all the kings of other nations. He's spiritually barren. Well, there's that. But he looks good. He's tall, dark, handsome. The crown sits really nicely on his head. It's good. Chapter 11 is the story of Saul's first great triumph. And actually, it's God's great triumph. This is a chapter about God's keeping power It's a multi-layered story, but what I want to do is I want to walk through this story, and along the way, I want to tell you three reasons why we trust in God's keeping power. Three reasons why, when the Bible says God keeps us, it it fills us with confidence and joy. Why, Why our focus is on His keeping power and His power, His authority to keep those who are His. I'll show you those reasons as we walk through the text. Actually, I'll give you the first one right now here. We trust in God's keeping power because God's keeping power follows God's promises. It follows on God's promises. Look with me again at verses 1 through 3 here, the threat. What's the threat that the people are experiencing? It's Nahash the Ammonite. Now the word Nahash or the name Nahash is very interesting um, is, uh, means snake or serpent. Do you remember the uh, bronze serpent that, that uh, Moses made? There was a bronze pole, and he put bronze serpents on it. Um, that was called, the name of that object was Nehushtun. Nehashtun. Okay, here's Nehash, the snake. Mm. Peter Leithart says, Saul has been crowned the new Adam, and there's a serpent in his garden. What's he going to do? So the threat is coming from the Ammonites. Uh, The Ammonites are distant relatives of the Israelites, uh, but they have been enemies for a long time. Uh, The Jordan River kind of separates or uh, goes down the middle of of, uh, Palestine. 
Jabesh Gilead and the Ammonites were on the east side of the river. And the Ammonites want that land for themselves. So they come to Jabesh Gilead. And uh, when the residents of Jabesh Gilead are threatened, they know exactly what to do. Surrender. (laughs) What happens, right? They say, oh, make a treaty with us and we'll be subject to you. Naash is not satisfied with that. That's not, he wants more. He wants to humiliate the Israelites. And so he demands that, they, uh, that he gouge out their right eye. With one eye, you can still farm and you can still pay your taxes, but you're ruined for warfare. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, uh, says that um, it, by custom, you would hold your shield in front of your left eye um, like this, and then your right eye, you'd be able to see what was happening if you, if you gouge out your right eye, you can't use your shield. And it also, it ruins your depth perception, your ability to, to shoot bows and arrows and, and fight. It's a brutal, brutal demand. And the text is very specific. Why does he want to do it? He wants to bring disgrace on all of Israel. So they ask for seven days. Give us seven days to plead with the nation for help. Now, why does Nahash agree to that? doesn't seem like a very smart tactical move, does it? Um, there's a couple reasons why. Maybe Nahash is thinking about siege warfare. Back in these days, when you wanted to attack a city or when you wanted to defend a city, what you do is you build a big wall around it, and if an army was going to come and attack you, they would surround the wall and keep any food from going in or any, uh, um, if the well was outside, any water from going into the city. And, and that's, you had to build siege works. You had to tear down the wall. It was, it was a huge and very lengthy process. It could take months and years Maybe Nahash agrees to this because he thinks that it, this could be over in a week. Instead of me having to siege, do siege warfare against you, maybe seven days, that'll be a lot shorter, it's a better deal. I also wonder, too, if Nahash believes that no one is going to come to their rescue. Maybe what he's thinking. No one's going to come for you. Actually, that, that's not a completely unreasonable belief. Now, um, this, I'm going to tell you a story from the book of Judges. There is a story in the book of Judges that is, that is similar to this story in the book of Samuel. Um, when I start talking about it, you'll recognize some of the common elements. And it involves Jabesh Gilead and involves the, the city of Gibeah. So here's the story. It's in Judges 19 through 21. It's a terrible story. It's horrible. There was a man who went to visit. He was traveling in, in Israel and he went to Gibeah, Saul's hometown. Saul hadn't been born yet, but... He went to Saul's hometown, the city of Gibeah, and he brought along his concubine, second-class wife. That's not good. Well, they go into the city of Gibeah, and uh, they find a, a place to stay. Somebody welcomes into their home, and the men of Gibeah come to this guy's house. They storm the house, and they demand that the man who lives in Gibeah send his guest out so that they can uh, sexually abuse him. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah, except it's happening in Israel. It's a terrible story. This man, this guest in Gibeah, he's brave and honorable, right? So what does he do? He sends his concubine out. Terrible. Horrible. She is abused by this crowd all night long and finally dies. And the man takes her body and he cuts it into pieces And he sends it throughout the whole nation and he says to them, look what's happened in Gibeah. You come with me and attack Gibeah and the uh, the tribe of the Benjamites 
and, and uh, will, will do justice, will get revenge for what they have done to my concubine. Everyone comes except citizens from the city of Jabesh Gilead. You didn't go when the nation called you. <laughs> what makes you think that they're going to come and rescue you now? Remember uh, back in chapter 10, verse 27, Saul is crowned king, and, and uh, there were some scoundrels that says, how can this fellow rescue us? They despise Saul. Here's the question. Who's going to come rescue you? Who, who possibly is going to care about you? Who, who, who is going to help? Who? Anyone? Anyone? Remember the direction of this story. Here, says, take a longer look from 1 Samuel of this little brief episode. This nation has rejected God. They don't want God as their king. They want a king like anyone else, everyone else. Is there anyone here in the, in the room who thinks that these people deserve to be rescued? Is there anybody who thinks that it would be reasonable or unreasonable for God to say to them, you know, I was your king and you didn't want me. And, and there's going to be consequences for you. I, sorry, hope that works out for you. Let me know. Is there anybody, do they deserve rescue at all, these people, for what they have done and their rejection of God? And yet, God's going to step in. He's going to rescue them. Why is he going to do that? Because of the promises that he has made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. These are God's people. He has covenanted with them. He has made great promises to them. And he's going to intervene here, not for their sake, but for his own sake. God has promised that he's going to care for them and rescue them and provide for them for his own name's sake because he is a promise maker and he is a promise keeper. God's keeping power is rooted in his character, not in yours. God rescues his people for his reputation, not for your reputation. The promises that you should hold on to most specifically are actually the promises that God has not made to you, but the promises that he has made to his own son. We quote 1 John 1, 9 often. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just. Faithful and just to whom? Faithful and just to his own son. His son who paid the penalty for our sins on the cross when he died. God in justice forgives sinners who align themselves with Jesus. God keeps his promises to his son. We trust in God's keeping power because of God's promises. Or think about the promises between father and son in John chapter 10. Listen to what it says. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand, Jesus said. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You do not deserve to be kept. But God's keeping power is founded on His promises. The promises He made to us, and even more so, the promises that He has made to His own Son. Now here's the second reason why we trust in God's keeping power. It's because God's keeping power vastly surpasses human ability. It vastly surpasses 
human ability. God's keeping power and our ability to keep ourselves don't even really compare, but that's actually what happens here in this, this, uh, these next few scenes here. Saul intervenes, but really it's God at work. And actually, as we see God at work here, from one perspective, we wonder, is Saul even really necessary to this story? <laughs> God's at work. Do we really need Saul? Well, we do. Let's look here. So verse 4 tells us that the messengers come to Gibeah of Saul. Now, why did they go to Gibeah? Probably because the people in Jabesh-Gilead had relatives in uh, Gibeah. And maybe, I wonder if they are thinking about the fact that Saul lives in Gibeah and he's supposed to be the king and he's supposed to rescue them. Maybe they're, they're coming to look for the king, possibly. What's bad about this, though, is they go to the city of Gibeah and they tell their story. And what do they all do in Gibeah? They start crying and weeping. And you want to ask, you want to ask the men of Gibeah, what about the king? What about Saul? This is not a great confidence booster for Saul, right? His relatives. <laughs> he's supposed to be the one who's supposed to rescue them. And they hear of a dastardly deed, his own relatives, and they're just crying. We have no hope. We have no hope. What is Saul? Saul? What about Saul? Not a confidence booster, right? But then where is Saul? Saul is out in the field. What are you doing, Saul? You're supposed to be the king. Why'd you go back to your day job? And why do you have to ask what's going on? Don't, why don't you know what's going on? You're the king, Saul. You're supposed to know what is going on. Why are you surprised or unaware of what's happening? Oh, Saul. Every election that happens, every election that happens in the United States, we're told by parties and pundits and candidates that we have finally found the candidate who is going to save us. Right? that true every election? Um, we have finally have the candidate who's going to take on the bad guys and tell us the truth and make the deals. He or she, they're finally going to get it right and solve us our toughest problems. We're finally going to have hope and change or we're finally going to have the deal-making that we need. No, I'm not thinking of anybody specifically, but we're finally going to get the person that we need, right? Every, every election. Uh, but every elected official overpromises and underdelivers. Happens every time. And we fall for the same thing again the next election. We finally found the candidate. We finally have the person who's going to rescue us and who's going to deliver us. Why do, why do we fall for that every time? That's actually how some of you, though, in a similar way, tend to think about your own your own assurance and your own doubts. You look at yourself. I will finally have confidence that I am really a Christian once I conquer this sin or overcome this pattern. Then I'll finally, I'll, I'll stop doubting. I'll stop, I'll stop, there'll be enough evidence for me to calm my own fears. If you could just learn to control your temper or stop looking at pornography or get your eating or spending under control, it would finally be enough and you'd finally have enough evidence to be able to convince yourself, you'd finally have peace that you finally are a Christian. When you trust in yourself and your own performance, do you know what you get? You get Saul. Uh, Matt Chandler, a preacher worth listening to, said something that's helpful about this. He was thinking about uh, where our confidence is or how our confidence is evident. Listen to what he said. 
The litmus test of whether or not you understand the gospel is what you do when you fail. Do you run from God and go try to clean yourself up a bit before you come back into the throne room? Or do you approach the throne of grace with confidence? If you don't approach the throne of grace with confidence, you don't understand the gospel. You are most offensive to God when you come to him with all of your efforts, when you're still trying to earn what's freely given. God's keeping power vastly surpasses human ability. Vastly. There's a tension in this text here that we have to hold on to. Saul is used by God here wonderfully. It is excellent. And he's going to continue to use him. It's really beautiful in this story. At the same time, though, here, Saul is going to stumble and fall a lot. So we have to keep these two things in tension, that Saul is troublesome and used by God. We have to keep those two things together. Our tendency in the Bible is we're looking for heroes and villains, so we tend to flatten things out. If you have trouble holding tension, <laughs> I, uh, we're going to meet David in a little bit. Man after God's own heart, who's also an adulterer and a murderer. So you have to hold these things, these things in, in tension. It's hard to tell in this book who's wearing the black hats and who's wearing the white hats. It's hard to tell. Sometimes. Here's how the tension, one of the ways that the tension manifests itself. God's going to deliver them. God's going to be at work. And, and what's interesting, verse 6, when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. Here is the Spirit of God. We're used to this sort of anointing. The Spirit comes repeatedly in the book of Judges. When the Spirit comes, interesting, in the book of Judges, the Bible almost always says the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of the Lord, God's covenant name with Israel, the Spirit of Yahweh. Do you know what it says about Saul? It says the Spirit of God. Ooh. Not Yahweh, but the Spirit of God. Now it means the same thing. It's just a little bit distant from God. Actually, there's only a one other person in the Bible that says that the Spirit of God came upon him. It was Balaam, a Moabite prophet. Oh, Saul, you're not in very good company. Regardless, this is God's empowering presence. The Spirit is going to remain in Saul until David is anointed in 1 Samuel 16. God is working here to deliver his people. That's what he does. That's why our confidence is in his keeping power. We should pause here for just a moment because I want you to see some patterns here in the text that work their way through the rest of the Bible. The first one is about the role of the Holy Spirit. How is it that incompetent men and women are able to accomplish great things for the people of God? It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Thursday night, the elders gathered for our monthly meeting. I hope you prayed for us. <laughs> we were available to pray for you. I hope you prayed for us. Eight of us sit around a table, and um, those are always magnificent meetings. Uh, not necessarily because anything unusual happens in those meetings. Sometimes they're dull. I'm not supposed to say that. Actually, I love committee meetings, so um, I don't find, think they're dull at all. I just, I, I'm so happy to be there. Normal people might find them dull sometimes. But what's magnificent about those meetings is that I sit around the table with a group of men who are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And they, they really want Him to work in our church, to lead us and, and help us. This is how God works in people through His Spirit. 
1 Timothy chapter 3 says that when a man desires to be an elder, he aspires to a noble task. It's an honorable calling to serve as an elder in a congregation. I hope there are many men in our church that this is, this is their aspiration, and it is an aspiration that is fueled by the Holy Spirit, because this is how God works uh, through people, by the Spirit. And we see that here, this pattern. There's another pattern that I, I confess is perhaps easier to see in hindsight, but think with me here for just a minute. God is working to deliver His people, and He does it through His anointed King by the power of the Spirit. Does that start to click a little bit here in your mind? God is delivering His people through His anointed King by the power of the Holy Spirit. We carry that paradigm through the rest of the Bible Who can rescue us? Will anyone come to rescue us? God's anointed king will come to rescue us under God's authority by God's spirit. The New Testament tells us that the Lord Jesus is God's anointed son who has come at his father's behest and by the spirit offered himself as our substitute on the cross so that we can be delivered from sin and death. This passage is starting to build into our minds the pattern we read in Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And then having believed we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Our deliverance from sin and death is the work of the triune God. Father, Son, the anointed King, Messiah, and Spirit. Where do we get this idea? This pattern emerges in the Bible to help us think about God's deliverance and how He delivers His people. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would like to invite you to consider this story. This is good news that we as a church, we gather to celebrate and we explore it together every week. We, we sing about it. We hope, uh, we love this message. We believe this message. The question again comes at the end of chapter 10. Who's going to save us? Can this fellow Saul save us? Uh, Verse 3, the men of Jabesh-Gilead wonder, is there anybody who's going to come and rescue us? And the good news of the Bible is that for the sake of love, Jesus came and he he has rescued us. Actually, how did he rescue us? He rescued us by not being rescued. He rescued us by Himself enduring on the cross the punishment that we deserve. And no one came to rescue Him. In fact, He cried out on the cross, did He not? My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Jesus was the unrescued so that we who deserve to be abandoned might be rescued. I might find life and forgiveness in His name. Friend, turning to and trusting in this Savior, Jesus Christ, is what makes you a Christian. We trust in the God who delivers us by His Son, and we find forgiveness in Him. Now, time is marching on. Let's move on here. In verses 7 and 8, Saul cuts up the oxen and sends the pieces to the whole nation. Did you you again see that parallel with the story at the end of the book of Judges? 
Um, just like what happened to the woman in Judges 19 through 21. But here it's not a woman who's cut up, but an animal. And it's not for the purpose of judging one of the tribes of Israel, but rescuing one of her cities. There's a new day, a new day with Saul. This is, this is good. And verses 9 through 11 tell us about the victory that, that uh, he brings about. Saul's is wily. He's smart. He divides his army and uh, uh, surrounds and ambushes a good plan. There's a phrase here that I... Think about this with me for just a minute, if, if it matters to you very much. Think about this. The text tells us, during the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites. That phrase, during the last watch of the night, is used one other time and only one other time in the Bible, and it's in Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, hundreds of years before this, Moses is leading the Israelites. Uh, God has rescued them from Egypt and he has parted the waters of the Red Sea and the Israelites are walking through uh, in this great rescue story. They're walking through the Red Sea on dry ground and Pharaoh's army is behind him and, and Pharaoh decides to uh, send his army in between the waters uh, uh, after the Israelites. And the text tells us that, here it is, during the last watch of the night... God threw the army of Pharaoh into confusion. God went to war to attack during the last watch of the night. I wonder if, if, if the author of Samuel is, is echoing that on, on purpose. Who's fighting for the people? God is fighting for the people. That's why we trust in His keeping power and not our own power. Why we must trust in His keeping power and not our own don't settle for Saul. Now, number three here. Why do we trust in God's keeping power? Reason number three. Because God's keeping power is the theme of his people's praise. God's keeping power is the theme of his people's praise. Again, before chapter 11, there's this doubt, how can this fellow save us? And in verses 12 through 15 of chapter 11, we have those same people brought again. Um, they should be put to death because of their rebellion against Saul. And Saul says, verse 13, No, no one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. Ah, Saul, you got it. Good for you, Saul. Ah, you recognize this. You understand whose work this is. God rescued them. And then the nation gathers together again to renew the reign of Saul. But notice they do so, the text, in the presence of the Lord... They do it with fellowship offerings before the Lord. They are acknowledging and celebrating God's goodness, His power, His deliverance, His keeping power. God's keeping power is what we revel in. That's why Jude says, to the God who, who, who keeps you, be glory, majesty, power, and authority. In verse 21, actually, of Jude, Jude says... Um, Keep yourself in God's love. You keep yourself in God's love. What does that mean? It means to celebrate that God is the one who keeps us. We, we give thanks to God for his keeping power. When we worship together with one another, we say to God, God, you keep us, and we worship you because of the exercise of your power in keeping us. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. 
When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. We revel in that. We celebrate that. That's what we sing to one another. I think it's what Paul is celebrating when he says, who's going to rescue me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think it's what the Apostle means when he says that nothing in all creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He keeps us, He keeps us, He keeps us by His great power. He keeps us. Steve Brown wrote a story once about a little boy who uh, accidentally killed his grandmother's pet duck. He was playing outside with his slingshot, and the slingshot got away from him, and he accidentally hit the duck with a stone, and the duck dropped to the ground dead. It was a foul deed. So he picked up the duck, and he dug a hole, and he buried the duck in the backyard. He didn't tell anybody what had happened. didn't tell a soul. Later, though, he found out that his sister had seen it all. Now she had this great leverage. So whenever his grandmother asked, him to do some, asked her to do some chore, when it was her turn to wash the dishes or take out the garbage or wash the car, she would whisper in his ear all the time, Remember the duck. Remember the duck. Remember the duck. And then he would go, wash the dishes, wash the car. It's a terrible way to live. Finally, he had had enough of this, so he went to his grandmother, and with great fear and trembling, he confessed to her everything that he had done. And he was really surprised by her reaction. She reached down, she gave him a hug, she said, thank you very much for telling me. She said, I was standing in the kitchen sink, and I saw the whole thing. I forgave you back then, and I was just wondering how long you were going to keep Uh, when you were going to get tired of your sister's blackmail and come to me. Some of you, you have in your mind constantly this voice that says to you, remember your sin, remember your crime, remember your sin. And the invitation of the Bible is, we have a God who knows and sees and forgives and is a keeping God. He keeps us by his power. That's why we come to him. That's why we hope in him. His keeping power actually frees us to live in the light of his great love. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize and celebrate this morning your great keeping power. For the sake of your son, for your own name's sake, you have rescued us and you keep us. You are able to make us stand before your glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who in particular are just weighed down with doubts and fears and concerns. And I pray that you would shape their minds and their hearts so that they would find great joy today in your astounding keeping power. Lord, we are prone to wander. 
our love often grows cold. If we have any hope, if we have any hope, it will be because you keep us by your power. Thank you for this story that tells us about how you kept the Israelites. You rescued them. They didn't deserve it. And you keep us, though we don't deserve it. You are good and great. Um, Grant us the freedom that joyful confidence in this brings. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.